Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Mimi A, author, food writer, and supper club host. Hello, Mimi. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us today, Mimi. Thank you for inviting me. I know I've been kind of running away from you for quite a long time. I, I looked at your back catalogue and I think everyone stole the films that I wanted to do. So I was desperately looking for one that I could talk about that hadn't been done already. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today uh, because I'm such a big fan of your new book, Mandalay, which I am holding. Uh, not that the listeners can see. Maybe they can hear it. <laughs> um, they could hear the glorious yellow cover. It's it's so bright. If, it, if you could see it, you'd be blinded. It's that bright. So. <laughs> Uh, and this is not your first book. Um, this is your follow-up to Noodle. It is, yes. It's my second book. Bit of a gap. I'm like, you know, one of those direct auteurs. There's like five years between each of my great masterpieces. So, um. <laughs> the Terence Malick of, of food writing. I love it. Hey, there you go. <laughs> what goes into making a, a book like this? Madeleine's, it's more than five years. Madeleine's probably the whole of my life, to be honest. Although I was a, kind of a reluctant um, author. So I, I'm Burmese. Um, the book is about Burmese food, but it's kind of, I kind of tried to shoehorn an autobiography into it, sort of. So it's, you know, the introduction is probably a lot longer than you'd get in your average cookbook. It's about 45 pages, I think. Uh, and then every recipe I've, I've put context and more kind of random stories. And I think I managed to justify this because the, the subtitle is recipes and tales. So trying to give, you know, your, your humble reader some kind of warning as to the content it's not just uh, this is how you make a pancake i was born in the uk but my all my family apart from like my mum and dad and my brothers are were in burma um so my grandparents were there so you know and summer holidays was basically going to stay with my family in burma and mandalay is where kind of my dad's side were which is hence the title of the book um and then the rest of my family kind of dotted around elsewhere but mandalay was always the hub the, 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 the book is kind of the book I always wanted to write, but wasn't sure if I should just because there was a lot of kind of personal detail in there. What happened was that I, I used to have a blog. Do people still have blogs? I don't know. I, I, had, I had a blog that was just kind of like your classic food blog. This is what I ate. And then off the back of that, I kind of got my first book deal, which was in 2012, 13. Uh, and that was I was asked to write a book about noodles. And from my point of view, I was quite perplexed because I'd always thought of myself as being someone that wrote kind of recipes and random anecdotes on, on a blog, but I never really thought I'd get to do a book. The thing that has meant the most to me, I think, is that a lot of people, either Burmese people or people who have Burmese, you know, kind of grandmothers and great-grandmothers who have maybe lost touch with that part of their family, have actually said to me that they've really love my book because basically it's kind of helped them feel a bit more in touch with their roots um, and also the fact that a lot of them kind of see glimmers of their own childhood because they recognize dishes that were made for them by their great-grandmother or their grandmother so so that's been really nice and you know I've, I've had a few messages that have actually <laughs> made me well up a bit because I've thought oh that's really sweet 
Burmese food is underrepresented in the UK, um, mm. for sure. Was there anything which you were like, this is what most people think of as Burmese food, and I really want to kind of dispel that myth and sort of expand it. Were there any kind of pitfalls you you're really keen to avoid? So one of the the, the kind of myths is, is is that it's hard to make, and I think that's a viewpoint that a lot of people think about Asian foods because that's that terrible thing about stuff is exotic and mysterious and it uses weird ingredients and all that kind of, oh, I can't buy that because I can't get it down my local Sainsbury's. And I wanted to make it really clear that that wasn't the case. But the other thing actually also I wanted people to know is quite how eclectic, you know, that word, but Burmese food is, it's a bit, it's a bit, haphazard sounds terrible, <laughs> but it's one of those cuisines where you can't really pinpoint it as being one thing. So you can't say it's just curries and you can't say it's just noodles and you can't say it's just salads and you can't say it's just fritters. And, you know, you'll have seen in my book that I've got chapters on all of those. And it really depends on the mood you're in because, I mean, rice is the most important thing to us, like a lot of Asian countries. It, you know, it's, it's the main carb, but we like everything, you know. And you know, like I said, it depends what time of day it is, what mood you're in, who you're eating with, you know. Where did you start? Was there one recipe you were like, this is absolutely going in and it's the first thing I'm going to get working on? Sort of. So we've got a national dish, which is called mohinga, which is like, um, it's like a, a fish soup. Kind of, it's a bit bouillabaisse, I suppose. That's something that everyone just has every morning in the same way that in Vietnam people have fur. It's, it's just the dish that we eat every day. So I knew obviously that had to be in it because otherwise I'd get, you know, rude letters from people. Um, <laughs> But other than that, so um, I, I actually <laughs> I had real difficulty whittling it down because I, I've originally had probably a list of about 200 recipes that I thought we really have to get in there. And, and the reason is, is because um, although I, I am Burmese, I'm, I'm ethnically a mix of lots of the different groups that are in Burma. So there's like over 135 different groups. Um, and I'm kind of part Burman, which is like the majority group, but I'm also part Shan. That's kind of from both sides of my family. And it meant that I wanted to put a lot of the dishes from those two cuisines in there. Um, and so I think I even wrote as a disclaimer in the book, there's a lot of dishes that are in here, but that's specifically because of my heritage. Um, and, you know, I think all of the different regions and groups could you know, have their own book, but I'm not that person that's going to write it for you. You'll have to find someone else. There's a couple of recipes which I'm very, very excited to have a go at. So the first one being coconut marble jelly which looks <laughs> so good. It is. It's really nice and refreshing. And actually also in this weather, what I like to do with that, I don't know if I even mentioned it, but if you freeze it, it's really nice frozen. Because um, mm. it kind of doesn't quite set. So it's, I don't know, it's hard to just explain the texture, but it's just the most refreshing thing you've ever had. So yeah, freeze it and then use that um, almost instead of an ice cube and it's so tasty. So yeah, make that one definitely. You're clearly passionate about food. How do you feel about movies? Um, and, and in particular, movie runtimes. <laughs> so, you know what? I was under the impression that all the films I liked were, were quite short. And in fact, when you asked me if I could find one that I liked that I could come and talk about, one of the things was, that I, I mean, I started off looking at your list and going, damn it, I wanted to do that one, damn it, I wanted to do that one. But then the other thing was that I started looking at all the films that I just liked without having any knowledge of their runtime. And they almost all appear to be like one hour and 45 minutes just to annoy the heck out of me. <laughs> so the reason I, part of the reason I fell for my husband was when we were at university, um, we went to, I was telling you that we had a local picture house 
and we went to the picture house to see Blair Witch Project, so you can tell how old I am from that. And we saw it and it scared the hell out of me. I mean, I, I, I was so traumatised by that. And we were still friends at the time, so we went with a group of people. We lived in the same kind of student house and, and I couldn't sleep. And I, I called him up because we had like connecting telephones in the student house we were in. And I, said, I, asked, him, I asked him if he could come sleep on the floor just so that I had someone else in the room with me because I was so scared. And he did, because he is a gentleman. And then, you know, the next day, I, this is really cliche, I saw him like in a slightly different light and I thought, oh, he's a real gentleman. You know, this is, this is, this is a really light and shining armour thing. He, he came and slept on the hard, I, yeah, because, you know, we're students, I didn't give him a blanket. I think he literally <laughs> just slept on the floor. Um, but yeah, he slept on my cruddy student room floor to protect me because the Blair Witch tra- Project traumatised me so bad. So He's a keeper. <laughs> he is a keeper, yeah. What fills my heart with joy about that story is the Blair Witch Project is an 81-minute film. So there you have it, oh. listeners. Under 90-minute films can bring you together. <laughs> you fall in love. You mentioned that I gave you some homework, and um, and it was it was I guess you were a bit frustrated because you know some of your your go tos had already been picked. But how did you <laughs> how did you whittle down to what we're going to talk about today? What was your process? So as I said, so first thing I did was I looked at your list of things that you'd already done, and then I looked at uh, there are quite a lot of lists out there which say you know the best ninety minute film, and I couldn't find any that kind of I felt like I was that passionate isn't quite the word, but one that I felt like I could talk about. In, in a way that would kind of fire me up very much. I actually came across the one that we're going to talk about sort of accidentally. It was one of those ones where I was kind of aware of his existence, um, but I think it flew quite a lot under the radar. Well, it did for us. I don't know if it did for other people, but you know, I, I don't know if you've mentioned it already, but basically it's, um, it's Chris Morris's latest film. And so his, his previous you know, Four Lions, that was huge. You know, everyone watched it, everyone loved it. Um, I think the soundtrack helped <laughs> quite a lot, to be honest, because um, it had an incredibly catchy and slightly incongruous soundtrack. Um, but it, it was one of those things where it was everyone watched it and everyone knew about it. But this one, I I only vaguely knew about it, and the reason I watched it is because it came um, on Prime. So um, I, I streamed it kind of probably about a month or two ago um, with my husband, and I thought, okay, it's Chris Morris, I want to watch it because. I mean, I'm I'm not um, a particular Chris Morris fan. I, I I watched all of his previous work and enjoyed it a lot. But you know, Chris Morris is someone who I've always really enjoyed his work. Um, and then suddenly this film came out last year, I think it was. And you know, it's 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 called The Day Shall Come, and I guess it's so the natural isn't quite the word, but it's a progression from Four Lions. It's a very similar topic. And so you know, I sat down and watched it with my husband and and thought, wow. This is a really good film and I think people should be talking about it and they're not talking about it. An impoverished preacher who brings hope to the Miami projects is offered cash to save his family from eviction. He has no idea his sponsor works for the FBI who planned to turn him into a criminal by fueling his madcap revolutionary dreams. Quite a short bit of blurb for this film, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, directed and written by Chris Morris, but also co-written with Jesse Armstrong, who's got such a huge list of credits. Most recently, the TV show Succession, and uh, yeah, 87 minutes long. And um, yeah, you're right, this one did fly under the radar. It uh, it was actually made in secret, 
Um, there was no sort of, oh, Chris Morris is working on his next film kind of gossipy pieces about it. He he just got on with it very quietly and he somehow managed to cast Anna Kendrick, one of the biggest <laughs> actors in the world, um, without too many people noticing. The cast is made up of some very recognisable faces if you watch American comedies, but there are a lot of new actors in this film, lots of mm-hmm. sort of unknown faces. And I, and I think this film will be a good launch pad for them. And I, maybe that's one of the reasons why it wasn't a totally star-studded cast, uh, which is why it could sort to fly under the radar but then it did the thing that indie films do it premiered at various film festivals last year and and came out in cinemas i think it was maybe last summer probably around the time mandalay was actually uh, out as well. probably. <laughs> i should have been talking about that not my book <laughs> <laughs> what i like about this choice is i love chris morris and I missed Today Shall Come at Cinemas. So I'm really glad you put this on the docket for me to uh, sit down and, and, and watch. No, because it's, it's funny, like you said, and I feel less guilty now because if you hadn't watched it, then one thing I was going to mention is that um, I don't know if you've seen that he went on Channel 4 News and he had a really good interview with uh, Jon Snow. It's, it's kind of on YouTube, I think it's like 15 minutes long and it's kind of one of the most intelligent dissection of you know, the world as the state it's in and, you know, counter-terrorism measures that I've ever seen but he also manages to take down what most people seem to think satire is and, and explain what it should be but the, the, the thing about you know that discussion that he had with Jon Snow is, is the fact and this is the thing that people won't necessarily understand if they think it's just another Four Lions is that Four Lions was about a bunch of terrorists but The Day Shall Come is about a, a, a bunch of people who decidedly aren't terrorists but you know end up getting sent to jail for being terrorists And the thing about this film also is that it's only a mildly exaggerated version of what actually happens. And that's the real shocking thing. In the interview with Jon Snow, he was saying about how the first question you have to ask yourself is who's the biggest recruiter of terrorists in the USA? And apparently it's the FBI. Wow. Yeah. There have been 300 documented cases of the FBI doing false flag operations in order to say they are catching terrorists. It's, it's, you watch it and you're gobsmacked because you know I did that thing I don't know if you did this but when, when I've seen a film I'm 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 quite <laughs> it's slightly sad baby I I kind of go onto IMDb and I look up the trivia section I like to find out more about a film and so the first thing I did was go and look at the trivia section for this film afterwards because I couldn't believe it was it was real um, or based on real events um, and there isn't actually anything in the trivia section which makes me feel. Bit suspicious has the FBI got something to do with this? <laughs> but then the website itself is an incredible website, the, the official website for the film. And it has, there's a, a tab called 100 Stories. And basically it explains the original story that the film is based on, but also lists lots of kind of, you know, citations. There's lots of citations for articles that you can read in case studies, which talk about you know, the, the, the prominent cases, which he clearly draws, Chris Morris clearly draws upon uh, in making this film. Um, I mean, the, the one that he talks about the most is the one that it's kind of most directly related to, which is um, a case called the Liberty Seven. Um, and what that was, was that it, it was it was basically seven construction workers who needed money were basically, you know, for one, they were basically being groomed. There's no other word. They were being groomed by the FBI um, and, and being kind of told that they would be given $60,000 if they would, you know, commit... A, a, you know, a crime, a, a, an act of terrorism. Um, and they ended up coming up with the most convoluted plot, which involved saying that they would create a tidal wave and the tidal wave would be created by them 
going into Chicago on the backs of seven horses. So it's it's kind of weirdly biblical, um, as as is kind of the whole, you know, you have that feel about about the film. That there's this kind of cult feeling about what these these poor men are doing. Uh, and the funniest thing also is that I think they I think they they got basically sent to jail as being related to Al Qaeda, but it turned out that six of them were Catholic. So oh. it's just. <laughs> utterly utterly impossible heartbreaking situations and it, you know it's hard to understand how the fbi can do this and continues to do it and you, you know i looked up other articles about it and so there's things in the washington post from last year say you know this, these things have happened and continue to happen and you know as as me being you know this random observer who's only just learned about all of these things in the past few months over here in the uk it just makes you feel utterly helpless and frustrated. Hi there, I'm Martin. And I'm Sam. And together we host a weekly show about the musician Tom Waits called Song by Song. Uh, We have together spent the last five years talking about his work one track at a time, Song by Song, uh, right the way from his first 70s album, Closing Time onwards, and we show no indication that we're stopping anytime soon. And we're just about to start on his 1999 Grammy award-winning album, Mule Variations, which is a really great and accessible place to start if you're new to his music and would like to find out more. So why not take a listen to that and us by checking out songbysongpodcast.com for more details or put song by song into your favorite podcast device so i mean just to talk a bit more about the film itself then so you know you mentioned that anna kendrick is um the, the main star i think probably one of the reasons that it flew under the radar is because i think she's playing against type um and, and in so I say this as someone who's only seen her in the Pitch Perfect films. So I'm, I'm not sure, but you know her character here. She's she's an FBI. I think is she a rookie? She's a she's a relatively junior agent, I think. Um, and and so she's kind of helping out her boss, who is he's one of those characters who's on the verge of retirement or wants to retire, but he wants to retire with a big case under his belt. Um, and then they've got a lawyer who's trying to advise them to do it, so it's not a PR disaster. And then obviously there's there's the kind of the conflict with the police as well because they're muscling in on each other's territory, and then there's this scene kind of early on where they're talking about well you know Anna Kendrick spots this the, this little cult so you know it's it's a cult of four people you know it's a man a man his wife his children and two friends I think uh, there's a scene where he says uh, I'll bring my army how many people can you bring four people. <laughs> exactly. So, so he's he's an incredibly. I mean, the, the, this you know, you said he's a newcomer. He, I think this was his first feature film. There's a gentleman called Marchand Davis. He is incredibly charismatic. You know, you can you can see how he would have at least those those four followers. I'm sure very devoted to him. But you know, he is fully in belief of his crazy scheme, which is I think he describes it as being wanting to topple the accidental dominance of white of the white race which is quite a funny way of putting it um but 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 he's very fervent about that but you know he's even more passionate about his farm he you know he wants to look after his chickens and his ducks and so he's got his his um his little band of people behind him and so he's you know he's streaming things on youtube and you know one of those videos catches anna kendrick's eye and Anna Kendrick, so Kendra, her character is called Kendra, which is slightly confusing because she's Anna Kendrick. But Ke- Kendra like sees one of these videos, and then she's 
she thinks, okay, I can do a bust, you know, this looks like an easy target. But then there's a scene at the start where, you know, all the various members of the police and enforcement and FBI are all together. And then the attorney kind of, the, the guy's the attorney goes crazy and goes, no, no, you can't do this because it's really bad optics because, you know, black people, they're, they're black, it's not cool. And then you get Anna Kendrick's boss go, no, no, it's fine. Black is the new brown. We can just say they're brown blacks. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an excruciatingly painful and absurd scene. But, you, you know, it's hard not to think this is actually their thought process. This is them thinking, OK, you know, we can we can stitch these people up and we can justify it and and, and you know especially watching that scene in the in the light of all the recent events and you know the black lives matters movement it it feels very much like you know, they're not taking people's lives seriously and then you know, they, they are just trying to chalk up numbers the first half of it i think plays pretty it, it's pretty hysterical this is it's quite absurd the the situation becomes that you know they they, they try to to do the things the right way so you know they they have they they subscribe to the doctrine that they um they don't want to use guns they're going to topple you know they're going to overthrow the europeans because he talks about europeans a lot as well not 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 kind of white us people but europeans specifically but he talks about toppling the U- europeans but he can't use guns because his god tells him his god and black santa i think he says um tells him that he they mustn't use guns because guns are weapons of the white people that were invented for them to su- oppress each other right so he says they can use their arms and they can use uh, crossbow, which is great. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like crossbow's fine, gun not so fine. They try to do things the right way. So they go for a bank loan and they get turned down for a bank loan. Kay Van Novak in the most remarkable part, he turns up um, as a kind of, he's not, really, he's not really an informant, is he? What is he? He's like a... He's being forced to do this because the FBI have leverage on him. Um, but I guess he's like a a mole in Fulham or, or something. Yeah. Like he's he's being manip- he's a being manipulated by the FBI to go in and to direct um, Moses and his crew uh, to do certain things. And and they've got pictures of him and recordings of him, um, which they're sort of threatening him with if if he doesn't sort of play ball with them. So I guess he's an unwilling yeah. kind of participant with the FBI. Yes, but he's he's as he said he's very active. He's not just a person passing on information. He actually plays a proper part in all of this. Mm. So he's you know he's part of the part of the whole plan to groom uh, this um, this poor man. Um, and then what you find out pretty early on is that, you know, that he's actually got mental health issues. This this the leader of this cult, Moshant Davis. Um, this this is a man that's being set up and he's not a man that's particularly well. And, you know, especially when you realise that Anna Kendrick's character, Kendra, realises fairly early on that this is the case. So the, the point is, is they keep trying their best to set him up and to get him to do the wrong thing. And he keeps trying to do the right thing, but in a particularly peculiar way. They they want so hard for him to do the bad thing, and he won't do the bad thing. But then, like I said, the I think the turning point is when uh, Moses goes to the FBI to turn himself in, because he you know he, his wife leads him. He goes to turn himself in at the FBI, and and Kendra goes to talk to him, and it dawns on her that they're doing they are doing a really bad thing, and he does not deserve it, and they should leave him alone. And what I think is interesting and I don't know I would say brave but this is Chris Morris so it's kind of expected at that point you would probably if it was a normal Hollywood film you would start to think that Kendra's going to do her best to help him and there's going to be a happy ending and they're going to end up on the same side and you know because that's what people like Anna Kendrick do in films they end up being the heroine 
But what happens is that she does try to help him, but at the same time, she's trying to save her own ass. And she's trying to kind of keep her, her you know, her brownie points. And then the, the, the conflict with the police comes, becomes an issue again. And so what happens is that every time she tries to get him in, in a position where he's in less trouble, he ends up in more trouble. And then obviously you end up, you know, you, you've spent you know, 80 minutes thinking this is utterly absurd and hysterical and I'm laughing all the way through it. And then, I, you know, I'm presuming I can say what the ending is. I won't specify, but basically you get to the end. And I'm, I'm in tears every time. I've watched it like four times now. And, you know, it, it's... Uh, well, it is. It's, it's a, unbelievably sad, and it's so. It is such a I think sad it, it, it starts off as you know, like say, quite a broadsided sort of comedy with very larger than life characters. But throughout the whole film, you know, the eighty minutes or so, you realise that these are not larger than life characters. These are based on very real situations that people, you know, come into contact with people like this on a very regular basis, and these people are very much, you know, working in positions of power. And and I think that's why the end is so. It's kind of a journey, isn't it? You know, you think it you're is. going for a good time Chris Morris film, and, yeah, and exactly. it's a, it's a cutting satire, but it's so close to reality. It makes it so unbelievably sad with the way this film ends, um, and you don't expect that going in. No, not at all. You don't. You just think, okay, you know, this is going to be some kind of spectacle. I mean, one of the things early on is, you know, when he's kind of he's on his horse and you mm. know he's got his hat, um, and he's just you know galloping along, and you just think, you know, he's such a a Don Quixotic figure, and that's when you start to realize this is going to end badly but i don't think it's still that point that you think that because you know instead of a massive cloak he's got a shower curtain wrapped around him you know but pretty much the whole film actually i'm really i was impressed with the commit the way they committed <laughs> to that that sort of flourish in the costume department it was amazing <laughs> i guess you know when you first see this film you don't quite know who who to side with and i think that first sort of scene with the fbi and the police is is very it is quite close to sort of the tone of something like in the loop or veep um yes. you know with people in positions of power being very sort of bad at their job and, and and you know saying things that you wouldn't you'd hope people like that wouldn't say it was very it's sort of in the comedy mold but at the end they, it's a very similar setup um in terms of the story kind of repeating itself but it means so much more when you know the people who the guns yeah. are being pointed at we've had 80 minutes exactly. to get to know moses and the rest of um, his crew exactly. and it, you're watching it in such a different way um and i love how he it's like chris morris is holding the mirror up to us as the audience like you know that scene that you thought was really funny at the beginning when that guy was being forced to buy drugs well this Think is about it, now, it this you know? yeah. <laughs> and and this yeah. happens and it it's um yeah i mean it I, I, you know, I didn't really laugh. I don't think for the last maybe twenty, twenty-five minutes of this film you because because it's so crushing. Absolutely, but I think as a as a filmmaker, as a creator, it's quite bold, isn't it? To, yes. To 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 you know turn your comedy into something else, and that's of course what Chris Morris wants to do because he likes to turn the mirror back on us and to highlight all of these you know terrible things that are going on in in society. As you say, there's a, there's a sting to those jokes that isn't present when you're first watching it. Um, so, you know, at, at the end, when the, the guy who's from the police department says, well, you know, an unarmed black man or an unarmed white man, who's more likely to have a gun? You know, it's it's the same kind of ludicrous statement that's made at the start that you laugh at. But by the end, you know, you're not laughing anymore because, you know, you think these this actually happens. And <laughs> these are actually the thought processes that are, that are occurring with people in power. Right, okay, what do you need from me, sir? Right, well, we know this emergency is groundless. Correct. But the emergency exists. Right. And you can't take control of something if you're saying it doesn't exist. Okay. So we have to acknowledge that the emergency exists. Uh, yeah, 
Well, n no, sorry. If we say, yes, it exists, isn't that the same as declaring a nuclear emergency ourselves? Uh, technically, yourself, but yeah. So, to stop a nuclear emergency, I have to declare a nuclear emergency? Yes, the logic only works if you say it slowly. Keep the contradictory elements apart. Like you said earlier, on, on the website, they have the real stories that this is inspired mm. by. I think the tagline for the film mentioned that too, a comedy based on a hundred true stories. It's clear that Chris Morris and Jesse Armstrong going into this are like, we want to tell these you know, unbelievably sad true stories, you know, how how there's this systematic problem um, in the Justice Department and, and we'll do it through the frame of, you know, this comedy satire. But they clearly went into this with a goal, I think, to sort of get these stories out to a wider audience. And, and that goes back to, you know, what Chris Marsh was saying in his interview with Jon Snow, the fact that I think these days a lot of people seem to think that the whole point of satire is to, to, to you know, get a pat on the back from the establishment when it shouldn't, you know, the point should be that you're you're holding up some kind of mirror and pointing out some kind of massive inequity, um, but using, you know, gallows humour, I suppose it is, to, to show it to everybody. You know, we were talking about how this film went under the radar. I, I do wonder maybe because this film is actually, you know, it's about a really serious subject and it's ongoing and actually... You know, I think there's definitely been more of a spotlight on this, as you mentioned earlier, with like you know the Black Lives Matter um, events we've seen recently, and and you know this film is so so relevant. But yeah. maybe people, you know, at the time they weren't looking for that at the cinema. They wanted something escape. That, yeah, you know, a bit less to, close to close to home <laughs> in in that respect. I, I feel like it should be like pres prescribed for people. I think everyone should watch this film. So. Well, I'm hoping now it is on services like you said. You saw it on Amazon Prime, and it was in your living mm. room waiting for you. Mm. You know, yeah. like actually now if it's if it's there on your TVs, <laughs> and it's under 90 minutes, guys, come on, uh, exactly. people be more willing to take a punt and actually you know see. See, you know, the new Chris Morris film. Exactly. That's the thing. That alone should have made people run to the cinema. So. It's it's a really it was a really funny one. I was I was surprised by yeah how it seemed to come and go. I can't remember what else was going on in cinema at the time, but I feel like it was definitely overshadowed by something else that was maybe taking up more of the airspace and massive people, blockbuster of some sort. <laughs> people didn't have the room to have conversations like we're having now about the film. We talked about how you know this film is a is a very serious film and it, it juggles the the comedy and 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 you know the sadness um, really well. It takes you on such a, an emotional journey. But do you have a a favourite scene? Now you've watched it a few times. Is there something that you've been looking forward to rewatching um, on on recent visits to the movie? Probably the scene. Like I said, you know, this is very spoilery, obviously, but it's probably the scene of just because it is so absurd where they go and meet the fake neo Nazis just everyone's trying to sting them at the same time and 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 what's happening is that Kendra and her boss um and the lawyer are all desperately trying to ring the fake neo-nazis who are actually members of the police um to override their orders and say well, it's the FBI stand down stand down and it's just a kind of you don't know if people are going to get shot you don't know if the fake people are going to get shot you don't know <laughs> what's going to happen and so so you have this massive panic. Everyone, you know, everyone's just on the ground thinking it's 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 kind of it's not quite a Mexican standoff, but it's one of those situations where everyone's freaking out. Um, and then it finally is over and done with, and you think everything's going to be okay. And then the guy who who's Jim Gaffigan, who's an who's a, a stand-up comedian, and so he is kind of the lead fake neo-Nazi. He says he says to the um, uh, Kendra's boss, who unfortunately I've forgotten his name, the guy's the kind of head FBI. Dennis O'Hare, I think. 
That's it. So he says, um, okay, we've let them go. What about the brown guy? And the brown guy is the guy who's the landlord who wanted the ray gun because he wanted the ray gun to give it to the neo-Nazis. And then Dennis O'Hare just casually goes, oh, you can have the brown guy. And then he gets dragged away. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's like the, amazing, the, the best kind of postscript to this incredibly tense situation where they're all, all freaking out. And then suddenly they went, yeah, yeah, you can take the brown guy. And, and it's again one of those situations where you think, how has it got to that point? And then you think, this could actually happen. This is terrifying. And it makes you wonder about things like friendly fire as well. And you know, in the end, it's almost like bureaucracy is going to cause everyone to, to get in trouble. And bureaucracy is what caused people to, to you know, get put in prison or get shot. So it's, it's, it's horrific. <laughs> The, the situation is set up because you know these it's because of these people's jobs they won't have a job if there are no mm. you know quote unquote terrorists to find um so they're manufacturing you know they're, they're pushing people into that situation mm. but yeah it's only because they they want to keep their jobs if, you know, if they have the independence to to not do that they wish there wasn't a pressure to to hit a certain number of of cases or whatever you know they wouldn't be hopefully wouldn't be doing their jobs in this way no exactly and because also they have different agendas and different goals so the fbi and the police are kind of trying to chase different targets and, and so you know what happens obviously is that you think everything's fine and the FBI have defused the situation but then the police aren't going to let it go and that's how it ends the way it ends because the police wouldn't let it go yeah I, I think it's a fascinating film in terms of how it's sort of put together like it's got it's got elements of sort of fast towards the beginning and and you know like old school comedy like Ealing comedy sensibilities um with you know these people playing against what you would expect them to be like but um but yeah just really it, how it mashes into reality uh to the end is um is is, is is a gut punch i was not expecting i'm glad i was able to deliver that to you <laughs> well, i think it's good you know it's it's cinema cinema is is there for many things but definitely to reflect the society in which it's made i think that's impossible even if you're making a sci-fi in 2020 or whatever you're always gonna sort of bring those elements to it but um i think this allows us to do this and to have a conversation like this um, yeah i think that's probably what chris morris you know wants us to be doing i hope <laughs> i think so i i I think we're probably discussing it in the way he would have liked, so... I'll make him sound like he's dead. He's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> the Day Shall Come is in our festival, and I'm really excited to be able to put this on because I've only seen it on my TV. And I want to see this on a big screen, and I think with an audience, I'd love to see what the, you know, how the, how the room reacts. If I was to give you a print of this film and a blank check to show this film how you like... Where would you like to screen this film? What would be your optimum setting? In the open air, and I think every member of the audience has to be on horseback. <laughs> Optional shower <laughs> curtains to wear. Optional shower curtains and fancy hats. I think we all have to be, we have to be Moses Al-Shabazz. Feel the passion of, of Black Santa. Sit, sit on our horseback. Understand how, what it's like to be in that position. Because, you know, the poor, poor man. <laughs> Seriously, I think open air would be quite nice. Yeah, open air, bringing out some elements from the film. Like we could have mm. a, a Santa for you to paint uh, black, exactly. as we see in the film. We could, have, could a have a sack of um, a sack of wood <laughs> and not yes. potatoes. You could have some cranes in the background that you know get set on fire by lightning. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> some small kind of firework display in the background. But yeah, no, I think that'd be nice. And then obviously we would have to have a Q and A. Um, the Q&A would have to have Chris Morris. I would just be, you know, there, there would be no show without Chris Morris. And, uh, you know, Jesse Armstrong, co-writer. I think that'd be amazing. Obviously, I would like the lead to be there, Marshall Davis, because he's incredible. Anna Kendrick as well. Um, 
know, it'd be really nice to, to kind of get some insight as to how she signed up to it in the first place because it is so different from other stuff she's done. Kay Van Novak, just because, you know, everyone loves him. He's great. And I would like Dennis O'Hare to be there as well. So we've got an open air screening full of horses, um, <laughs> a couple of fun props. <laughs> we'll get a ray gun, we'll get a dinosaur and um, reunite the cast. I, I think a Q&A on horseback is the way to go with this. I think so. Yes, they must also be on horseback, of course. I just imagine how uncomfortable Chris Morris would look sitting on a horse. It, that fills me with joy, just that thought. Going to the cinema, snacks and drinks are very important. They're part of the experience. What would be your dream menu to go along with uh, a screening of The Day Shall Come? <laughs> For a film like this, I don't think I could eat. I know that sounds weird, but I, my heart was in my stomach the whole time, I have to say, because I think partly because it is a Chris Morris film and I knew that this was not going to have... I mean, a, a joyful ending of any kind. I didn't realise it was going to be quite as brutal as it was. Um, I, should, I should have done, actually. Four Lions was pretty brutal. Um, but I think it's very much a situation where I, 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 I don't think I could have eaten anything. I think, as you say, wooden potatoes for everybody. They've got something, they've got something they can hold on to. Yeah, just um, more for, but... yeah, to keep your hands entertained. Exactly, exactly. Maybe some popcorn if I'm feeling generous. <laughs> We'll have a very small tub of popcorn and uh, <laughs> maybe just some tap water, some glasses of tap, tap water, water. But everybody will get a wooden potato as you go. As you go <laughs> and they won't get it. They'll be like, what? Why are you giving me this until that scene? And then everybody will go, oh. Well, come on. It's a choice of either a wooden potato or dumpster dived food, right? So. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's, there's no good outcome of the, those no. choices. <laughs> I think the wooden potato is a nice souvenir, isn't it? You know, you take I that think home. So, <laughs> get Chris you Morris to sign it on the way out. Well, that's the thing. The cast members could all have their sharpies ready, and they could all sign your potatoes and leave. So. Uh, um, oh, that's brilliant. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I mean, I think our screening is going to be as surreal as the movie. there we have it thank you so much for bringing the day shall come to our now outdoor cinema mimi where should people go to see or read more of your work I, i'm slightly embarrassed about this having having just told you to go and watch this chris morris interview um that at one part of it he's very scathing about twitter but unfortunately twitter is probably the place where you're most likely to see me um as i said my my patience is <laughs> kind of shocked um i haven't written in my blog for a very long time um i occasionally post bizarre photos or, or nice photos food uh, on my instagram but twitter is where you will find me warts and all yeah come say hello to me uh, my, my username is meemalee m-e-e-m-a-l-e-e -E -E. i use the same handle on pretty much every platform um but yeah t twitter come come tweet me i'll say hello <laughs> thank you mimi for talking to us today it's been so nice uh, to have a chat and to to not quite meet you but to meet you on zoom uh, next best thank thing. you sam it's it's been lovely chatting with you thank you for having me on Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We are a proud member of the Stripped Media Network and we'll be back in a couple of weeks.
We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.